Hey there, and welcome back to War Starts Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. Hello. And Peterson Hill. Welcome. On each episode of our series, The Magnificent Andersons, we explore another element of the oeuvres of American auteurs Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Guys, what are we bantering about today? Well, we've got a review of PTA's masterpiece about a relentless, independent oil man, There Will Be Blood. Plus, we've got a perfect beer to pair with a pint of Daniel Plainview's Sweet Crude. And of course, we'll wrap up Swallows 2 with some really rad recommendations. But first... Hey guys. Hey Chris. What's going on Chris? So we have a bit of an interesting episode this time around because There Will Be Blood is actually a movie that we discussed a while back. I mean, it, it's been probably what? Is this our first re-review of a movie, Chris? I mean, why would we generally re-review a movie that we've already discussed? I don't know. We're going to do it next week. Yeah, but that was in that was in a totally different context. We were doing There Will Be Blood versus No Country for Old Men, kind of a 2007 showdown 10 years later i remember the outcome so this is a little bit different but we got to start off the the show like we always do with these magnus van anderson's episodes before we came into rewatching again for this review uh where'd you guys stand on the film i have seen this movie this is probably the fifth fifth or sixth time i've seen it a good bit but i hadn't seen it since our last review i didn't go that's a lot for you too It, it is yeah uh, and it it's one of those movies that coming into this, I uh, have mixed opinions about. I, I I obviously love the performance, love the characters, things like that. But it's not always a movie that really hits home with me. And uh, you've probably heard me say uh, many millions of times at this point that uh, P.T. Anderson has a worldview that I don't generally agree with. And that this is really the one that that is the origin of all of that. And I'll, I'll get into it later. But it's one of those movies that I always have appreciated as being well made and having a lot of things I like, but not being one of my favorite movies. And I was really eager to revisit it this time. I think now it's better than I thought it was then. It's probably my top 10 of all time now. Could be a little bit higher than that. Could be top five. It's a movie that, for me, gets better with every single viewing. And looking at it critically is when I even start to love it more. Because, you know, watching a movie and just sort of watching it to enjoy it is one thing. And then watching it to critically talk about it and think about it and dissect it makes you look at it a little bit differently. And... Looking at it critically now, I just think this movie is unbelievably told from the way it's edited to the way it's written to the acting, which I'm sure we'll get into again. This is a movie that I unabashedly love. Every single frame of it, every single second of it, I love it. There Will Be Blood, it's it's the type of PTA movie that, and a lot of his movies are like this with me, upon revisit, they go up and up and up in uh, my uh, feelings for it. And so at the last, I I hadn't seen this in a few years since we, we last discussed it, um, and I was at the, the highest point I had been with it, um, not my favorite PTA, but um, a pretty damn good movie as well. And I'll leave it at that for now. I worked for Geological Survey and uh, went to Kansas, 
I couldn't stay there. I just couldn't. I don't like to explain myself. Are you an angry man, Henry? About what? Are you envious? Do you get envious? I don't think so, no. a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. That part of me is gone. Working and not succeeding. All my uh, failures has left me. Uh, I just don't care. Well, if it's in me, it's in you. There are times when I... I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can... get away from everyone. What will you do about your boy? I don't know. Uh, maybe it'll change. Has your sound come back to you? I don't know. Maybe no one knows that. Doctor might not know that. Where's his mother? I don't want to talk about those things. All right, guys, time to talk about There Will Be Blood again. I did not go back and listen to our old review because I didn't want to be bringing up anything that we talked about there. So hopefully this will be all new discussion. Um, I definitely had a different reaction here. Um, let's So let's open it up. Jake, did having the context of sort of PTA's trajectory up to this point watching his films chronologically, did that change your perspective on The World We Blood at all? Yeah, a- absolutely, which is not something I expected. I was like, I know this movie pretty good. Like, uh, I know what's in the cards there. But watching it this time, two things really struck me. Number one, how how personal this film felt and how directed it felt having a, a single main character as opposed to other PTA works that have come before this, like Magnolia and Boogie Nights, uh, and then going kind of stepping way down uh, in in the budget realm or uh, maybe even ambition, if you want to say that, with Punch Drunk Love and, and shrinking the cast a bit. But here going back up in in uh, in in scale, I guess, if you want to think of it that way, but then going extremely personal with the Daniel Plainview character. That was just a bit of, of range of PTA that I'd never really appreciated before, how he can handle a big um, – a a big ensemble cast, but also a really great character driven movie, a deep character examination like this. Yeah, I had something somewhat, I, I think maybe kind of similar in, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever watched this back to back with Punch Drunk Love, certainly not as close in proximity to Punch Drunk Love. And so this time around, like, this actually felt like a totally natural progression. I've always thought of, of, 
punch drunk love as the kind of inflection point where he goes off mm-hmm. to start doing his sort mm-hmm. of second chapter as far as getting smaller, not doing big ensembles so mm-hmm. much anymore. Um, but this, I was amazed this time around at how much this feels like the natural progression from punch drunk love into something that is bigger, but also super intimate and really like, I was amazed this time around and I've always seen it as like a big epic scale movie and it's really, really lean and really using a PT is really getting by with, you know, presenting you, he's constantly saying, okay, how little information do I need to actually communicate or present to communicate the point? And so the economy of this movie is still razor thin. And I love that about it. That's something that I was aware of before, but not nearly as acutely aware of it as I was this time around. Punch Drunk Love felt like, let me work on what it would be like for me to do a character movie. And I'll do it in a warehouse that I rent in the back of an office park. Mm -hmm. This felt like the fully realized version of that. And he's like, what if I did it in an open field? But also, I'm a master of cinema, and it's going to create this entire world for you. Yeah, there's a there's a little town, and there's the big oil rig. But other than that, this is a, a, a character piece. Yeah, and it's and it's all sold by the acting and directing. The intimacy of this thing is what I think really draws me in because I I went back and I listened to the old episode just to figure out where Jake was wrong and make sure that if you brought it up again i would i would know what to call him on that's a um, very very daniel plain view <laughs> to go in and, and know where the pressure points you. are i have a competition in me and i want no one else to succeed um no but so i i went back and listened to the old episode and I, one of the things that that struck me was we talked about plain view and we talked about the direction and the writing and the thing we didn't talk about was the deep well of empathy in this mm-hmm. film, I think I think there is undoubtedly a strain of empathy towards Daniel Plainview that isn't really examined enough. I think people talk about this movie and they don't talk about Daniel Plainview as being this really subtle, really emotionally volatile character. They talk about him exploding. They talk about him being this outsized character, but they never talk about the intricacy that PTA and uh, Dave Lewis bring to this. I think it's a movie of, and I can't remember who said this, and it's going to kill me. I think it, it may have been Ebert, but it's a performance of monstrous subtlety. Um, it's so big, and it's so outsized, but at the same time, it's so contained, and it never oversteps. It never goes over the line. Um, and I think that's one of the things that grounds this movie. But at the same time, I think the writing is so, so good here. And PTA keeps this character so confined. And in the, in the Elvis Mitchell interview on the treatment, PTA is talking about, you know, well, you know, I probably wrote more than he really needed to say theoretically. But when you have an actor like Dion Day Lewis, you realize, oh, I don't necessarily need that dialogue. I can just cut that out. And he just starts stripping things away. So the movie becomes this 
active? What can we strip away? Where can we lose things in the editing? Where can we lose things in the dialogue? What can we strip away from this thing to make it even sparser, but still convey the same emotional tone? And that's, I, I think there's a deep will of empathy in this film that people don't talk about enough. And I, that comes from Day Lewis. And as good as I think Paul Dano is, I, you know, I, I just think Day Lewis creates this really beautiful, really intimate character from, from the outset. It's an interesting character and it's a tough character to sort of grapple with because. You're right. There is there actually is that empathy there. And I don't know if it's necessarily the type of thing that it's certainly not the type of thing that I noticed on the first viewing, but it's something that absolutely I, not. No, that I did not at all feel each time uh, I revisit it more and more. And I, I think part of that is the first time around, you don't really know until halfway, probably more than halfway through exactly. He doesn't ever open up until he is talking with the guy who he thinks is his brother. And so he's always working in the facade of Daniel Plainview, capitalist businessman, oil tycoon. Um, you know, he's, he's always presenting and it's only whenever you see him let down that you kind of get the inkling of who he is. And then when you know that about the character, as you go back in, in, rewatching it there's actually a lot to pick up on a lot of very subtle things that daniel day lewis is doing just in his mannerism in the way that he looks at other characters and the way that he reacts to other characters so no i think i think you're right but the thing that's difficult to grapple with is the fact that he is both an empathetic character and a I've been struggling with how to exactly express. I, I think I've come down on, I don't think he's an immoral character in the way that he, you know, he, he slaps Eli around and he kills a man who, uh, claims to be his brother and is not. I, I, I think more, he is an amoral figure in that he doesn't actually morality doesn't factor into anything that he he chooses for better or worse i almost think he's in in a affected human he he's a a person who's slowly growing hatred inside of him like he said mm-hmm. and so you see a man who is hurt who see and you see the reasons why he starts to grow that hate mm-hmm. and then you see the outcome of it things i didn't pick up on earlier viewings was i i i think he has a genuine affection for hw and I think yeah. having that separation from HW is why he lashes out so much at Eli. He's mm-hmm. lashing out at God and at fate and all these other things. And so when he when he throws Eli in the mud, I thought it was a, a lashing out at Eli. And instead, this time it felt much more like a reaction to the events that had happened um, to HW. I think it's probably both. So this is where I think the character becomes in- infinitely interesting, is that I do think – he is on one hand lashing out at Eli, but also I think in that moment he needs to find something that's not his son. He needs to figure out something. What PT does is he constantly creates this character that is talking about um, the abuse that's happening to Mary Sunday. And he's saying, well, I'm going to stop it. I'll stop it. And you have that very 
pointed scene where he essentially says, your father doesn't hit you anymore, right? Right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. what PTA does, what I love, the, the shot that's so great, it's, it's the intimate two shot between the two of them. Or, but <clears throat> it's the intimate shot between the two of them. And then it changes angles and then boom, there's her dad. And it's this very funny, weirdly funny, weirdly funny moment where he's in the background kind of like, why would you do that in front of me? That's very belittling to me. But it also shows that Daniel Plainview will not stand for that kind of thing. He doesn't do that. But when you last see him before HW comes back into the picture in the very end, he's also – he's not quite as – he's not really abusive, but he's he's certainly not kind to him. He pushes him down. He kind of neglects him in a way. And it, it creates this very complicated, very in- interesting character that has a lot of idiosyncrasies. And I think that's hard to – it's hard to reckon with. Yeah. But at the same time, you know that person. Um, you may not know Daniel Plainview, but you know the person who is that kind of – that has that kind of volatility within them. Um, and the thing that always gets me is that he always says – you know, you know, I I hate most people. I don't see much worth liking in them. Which means, at the end of the day, he doesn't like himself. He doesn't have any love for himself, which is going to make you turn outward and find hate for everyone else that's not you too. Well, I think he's and and this could be seen as creating excuses for him, but I think PTA paints a vivid enough picture of his character. As even as lightly as he kind of uh, throws details out there to us, but he's really the Daniel Plainview that we think of as Daniel Plainview, who is the big, audacious oil tycoon sort of guy, the guy who is presenting in you know to the town or at the very end, I drink your milkshake, I drink it up. All of those kind of what we think of as iconic Daniel Plainview. That's actually this sort of protective shell that he's created of himself. It's this facade um, because there's something, you know, we don't really get too many details. And even when he's talking to Henry, he says, I don't like to talk about my past or I don't like to something to that effect. There's obviously trauma in his past and he doesn't want to revisit it in any way, be it, shame or things that he's done wrong or things that he had no control over that have, you know, there's, it's probably a mixture of all of these things, uh, together, but he, he sort of, so he's created this character for himself that he lives in most of the time. You know, you go to the scene where he meets with the standard oil folks and they offer him a million dollars and he basically says, well, what would I do with myself? Like he legitimately has no idea if he wasn't milling about in the dirt and searching for oil and pulling it up. He doesn't know what he would do. And ultimately we see, you know, at, at the very end in the last chapter that once he kind of reaches the apex of he doesn't need to be going out and exploring anymore, he's kind of miserable. 
all of that is to say that we we see these pockets though of his uh talking with henry of his dealing with hw um where he allows himself to become a little vulnerable and allows himself to kind of uh become who show who he really is but then he also the shell of daniel plainview that he's created hates that about him and so it creates the shame in him and so i think in that last confrontation with hw that's sort of what he it's the apex of that conflict where he doesn't and he lets he lets daniel plainview the facade win out because it's just too painful for him to see it any other way one of the moments before we get to the very very end of this movie which is the last, uh, I guess, fifth fit when it's him in the mansion. Mm-hmm. He It's right after he shoots his would-be brother in the head and he is reading the journal mm-hmm. of his actual brother and he starts crying to himself. That's one of the only scenes we have of him exclusively by himself. There's no one around. There's nobody that we know of. I can't think of any other moments in the movie that have that. Mm-hmm. And it's a moment of true vulnerability. And you realize how much he is searching for this family, how much he needs it, really needs it. And I think that's a moment that's one, illuminating, but two, makes you realize he's not really a monster. He's just – He's trying to figure out and he's trying to understand his place in the world. What do you guys think of his adversarial relationship with Eli? So that's that's perfect because that kind of brings me back to my second part of your answer of what's different from watching watching this now that I've seen the other PTA movies. My statement about PTA's worldview doesn't sync up with mine, I, I think is in part formed from that statement. So I don't know if the portrayal of Eli offends my Christian sensibilities, if that's what it is, or uh, or denouncing Daniel Plainview for having for being a capitalist offends my my political views. Whatever it is, something about it has never set right with me, and it made me feel like PTA is just so distant from the things that I ascribe to or believe in, or the way that I see the world that the movies that he makes just doesn't really work for me. That's that's the best I could come up with. After seeing something like Magnolia with its take on sort of a a, a plague uh an, an exodus uh, uh event is it, it informs that religious aspect a little differently which had me looking at this entire thing uh the entire relationship a bit differently as well. One of the problems I always have with the relationship between uh, Daniel Plainview and Eli is that it never quite feels like a character driven relationship to me. It always feels like an allegory. It always feels like capitalism versus religion. And it never feels like that personal relationship. I know that's a problem probably with me interpreting the film more than anything else, but that's a, uh, uh, that's kind of my thought, especially at the end of the movie. Uh, with the the bowling pin beatdown scene, so so now ridicule me for my wrong opinions. I've actually had that more or less that exact same read. I think every time up until this time, really, yeah. And this time, I think it's because I finally got deeper into Daniel Plainview 
and on his wavelength a little more and understanding exactly kind of what makes him tick because I've often seen him as just he's the proxy for for capitalism mm-hmm. just run amok with no yep. nothing holding it back yep. and then Eli is a proxy for um religion you know yep. run amok nothing holding back and I mean there are, there are definitely things where you could argue that that's going on the fact that Daniel Plainview is named Daniel Plainview. He's straightforward. Eli mm-hmm. Sunday, Eli Sunday. It's, you know, the day uh-huh. of sacrament. There's, you know, he he just lays things out so simply that in, in a way that like in the hands of another director would be foolish. Uh, but this time around, I, I actually, the relationship I saw a little differently in that I think I I don't think he's saying that all religion or all religious people are this way, but specifically Eli is the false prophet. He's a, well, he's a charlatan the televangelist. He's a charlatan. And that is specifically why Daniel Plainview hates him from the beginning because he sees through the bullshit from the very beginning and so him having that competition in him, he he says, okay, we're adversaries. I know you're a bullshitter. I can see through it. You don't bullshit a bullshitter. And for the most part, like he's he's trying to get the best deal, but he's not I don't think Daniel Plainview is pure evil in a like Ooh, the the capitalists are coming along to take all, you know, take everything. You know, it's not mm-hmm. it's not that kind of story. If it was that kind of story, it wouldn't be the independent oil uh, tycoon. It would be standard it, it would oil. Be standard oil. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, that's not the story that he's telling. So, I I think it's more, you know, the reason that he's so hard on him is because he he realizes that he is a cancer of a very specific type, not like it's it's not all encompassing of all religion um and i think there's i mean i definitely see the other side because i that has been my view up until this point but mm-hmm. um i think there's you know and and that's why this movie deserves rewatches and deserves you know the uh kind of digging a little deeper and sinking your teeth into it because it is so subtle in the way that he sets things up. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I latch onto this time, really paid attention to the score. When certain cues hit and when they stopped. So the cue where Daniel is – he has been told by Eli, okay, when you introduce the well, invite me up and say, the proud brother of these hills. Yeah. Instead, he brings Mary up, and as soon as that happens, it hits with the music that is also the music that hits at the very end of the film. And it's right after Daniel has then, at the very end, mm-hmm. smashed Eli's head with a bowling pin. Yeah. And it is a moment where the two musical scores are saying, well, this is where the rivalry truly begins. And this is where it ends. Because up until that moment, I don't know if uh, Plainview had really understood exactly 
what Eli was capable of. There he's saying, look, I'm a true charlatan. I need you to introduce me. We're going to make this thing a show. We're going to make it a theatrical thing. And then you're going to introduce me. We're going to have this whole hoopla thing, whatever. And it's going to make the church look good. It's going to make you look good. And Daniel's like, nope, I'm not about that. I'm about opening the well. I don't care about your theatrics. Like, I don't want you. I want to make money. I want to make – and at the end of the day, he also makes the town money. He makes people money. He doesn't really cheat anyone out of actual money. He does – Except the church. The church, yes, but also he cheats the church because Eli starts essentially uh, being a showboat. And he says, you know what? You don't need the money. You already are building your second thing because – the money comes in. He's supposed to pay the money when they hit oil. And they haven't hit oil, and Eli's already building the next church. So he mm-hmm. obviously doesn't necessarily, in Daniel's mind, need the money. He is building something just to build it and just to have this show. And I think that's what PTA is so smart about. He has these small character things happen at just the right time in the script. Just the right time. He doesn't prolong it. He doesn't shorten it. He knows just how long he should go until, you know, the church gets built or the oil breaks. I like Paul Dano's performance. I think it's pretty good, but I, I it's not the A-plus performance that I, I, I that obviously uh, Daniel Day-Lewis turns in. But I, I That's think not fair. That's not fair. Not, that's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair at all. I know that. But I, I do think it would have... In my mind, I think there could have been a better portrayal of of uh, Eli Sunday. I don't I don't know why something's just just doesn't click a hundred percent with me from from Paul Dano's performance. I can't I can't put a finger on it. I'm honestly more put off by the the fact that he also plays Paul Sunday. Um, yeah, I I think I mean especially in first viewing that I kept waiting for there to be a reveal that there was only there wasn't another brother they they should have given him a scar or a mustache or something this is something i've always thought about i've always reckoned why pta would have two brothers one shows up at the beginning theoretically the twin of the other and you never see the first one again i think what pta is doing is he has the father named abel uh-huh. And Abel, from a biblical sense, is obviously Cain and Abel. Right. Yep. Is the son that gets murdered by the other. What he's doing is uh, Paul comes in, sells away the land. Now Eli comes in, and he's essentially going to be the man of the household. And he essentially, by the end of the film, is murdered by his brother, Paul. Abel had the two sons that then competed against each other, even if it was competed against each other from a very distant perspective. Um, and if that doesn't make sense, I completely understand, but it makes sense in my head. I hear what you're saying. So so one thing I thought this time watching it, and you, re- you listened to the last episode, maybe I thought this last time, I can't remember, but there's only one scene in the movie that I can remember that didn't have Daniel Plainview in it. Do you guys know what that is? Yes, it's the scene where... Uh, Eli is at the dinner table after his face has been shoved in the mud. 
Yes, and he he jumps mm-hmm. across the the table and throws the dad down and all of that. So I put a lot of thought into that this time. I didn't know maybe that scene didn't happen, and that's something that that uh, that Daniel Plainview was thinking about. But I don't think that's likely. I think it's in there. But that's the only confirmation we have that Paul was a real person, and that's why. Like, it's always rubbed me because it's just it's a little long to go without that confirmation. And well, I, I but feel he like he mentions it in the last scene. Right. But it, but it, that, that wouldn't have just that wouldn't have said anything. Let, let's say that scene wasn't there when we got to the end. It could just be like Eli's trick to get Daniel in and get the money has come back to bite him. Uh, his posing as Paul. I think he is there. I think he does exist. My yeah, my yeah. only problem is I think casting Paul Dano as both without making it very clear when we, we are introduced, when we we are introduced yeah. to Eli that he is not Paul. That's a major misstep. That's a the like ol- for, for all the elegance of the way that he pulls everything off. That's the one thing that feels like yeah. you needed you needed a little more complication to confirm that these are separate yeah. characters. The only other thing I thought of, Chris, why he might have done that is to show the instant distrust that we and Daniel Plainview and us as viewers have of Eli when we meet him. Is Eli Paul? And what's what's his story? What is he going for? And that's sort of maybe the same read that Daniel Plainview has on him as well. Is this is this Paul? Am I being am I being shammed? But see, I think Daniel Plainview, I that and that was my the very first time that was my initial read. I think Daniel Plainview though knows from the beginning. I like, I don't think he's even considering. I think he knows that he liked Paul. He, he gave Paul $10,000. He, from the very beginning, he gave the 500 because at the beginning he threw him 500. And at the end he says, I said, he he tells him, yeah. Yep. Eli, I think he's lying to Eli and saying, he probably is. Okay. I think everything yeah. at the end of the film but is a lie. At, at you're no, that's that's absolutely it's it's just the same as him telling HW that you know you were a bastard in a basket and I never loved you. Like that's that's him. Well, yeah, that's he's true. he's flying off. He's just full of he's he's doing whatever he can to hurt whoever he's talking to at that yeah. point. Like at the end of the movie, he's basically reached this point where he's just exploding and he's just shoving the knife in and he's just stabbing everyone. He's completely full of hate at that point, but he's also uh, projecting his flaws onto uh, HW where, where he earlier in the movie talked about his hate building up over time. And he's just mm-hmm. full of hate by the end of the movie, but he's saying that HW has his hate building up inside of him over time. But then he turns right around and says, but there's not none of me in you. Yeah. And, and so he's, he's both projecting his flaws, but at the same time contradicting himself. He's, he's just, like you said, he's just out, out for pain, out for blood on, on anybody really. But so back to my, my point about Paul and, and Eli, I think the fact that he trusted Paul even a little bit to give him any money at all, um, you know, that's something that he's never done with Eli. I feel like from the very beginning, from the moment he meets Eli, he's got his eye on him on him and he's sort of aware that he's trying to grift in some way. The first time he meets Eli, Eli asks, Okay, you're gonna give us money. We need it what was it, five thousand dollars for the church. Yeah. 
Yeah. So he knows from the beginning he just wants to profit off of his church. He's not actually looking at like building a congregation that's meaningful to people. Like that may be part of what Eli does. Like he may mean something to people, but that's not his primary focus. I think he's really poking at these ultra millionaire preachers and priests who don't really care about the congregation. They care about, well, what's the next payday? And I think PT is smarter than to say, well, everyone who's religious is one way and everyone who's not is the other way. He's much more interested in, well, capitalism, it's got pros and has cons. You know, religion has pros and it has cons. You know, what what are the two of them? How do they intermesh? And how do the two of them compete against each other? When they come out against each other, who wins? One of the reasons that I've struggled with this movie in the past in the same way that it sounds like Jake has is mm -hmm. because it is so black and white in its, in its presentation, I've read it as black and white as a blanket viewpoint. And I don't, yeah. but I don't think it's that. I think it's black and white in this particular setup, but he, PTA is also open to, you know, other options beyond Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday. It just happens to be that these characters are, are this way. And so that's the sandbox that he's playing in. We've talked about the allegory of the film and, with the overarching theme and where the characters end up, but the actual filmmaking, you know, what do you guys think? I, I think last time, Chris, you weren't crazy about the cinematography. If I can remember, you know, what, what do you think about this time? How does Robert Ellsworth's cinematography mess with you now? I think I probably like it more this time around. There are still things like there is a bleach bypassy thing that, I still don't love, I think it makes it feel dated in the time it was made. And that's just a, that's a little quirk that I'm never going to be able to get over, I think. Is that on the whole film or in specific it's, spots? It's, it's on a good, I mean, especially in the way that the- It'll hard cut to that a lot. The, the desert sort yeah, of, or yeah. the, the, the landscape stuff, it just has this crushed shadows- bright poppy whites which look great for the it's setting but it's just it's one of those things that was overdone you know a few years leading up to this uh, mm -hmm. and into the so it just it always reminds it's kind of like i mean it's the same thing as you see 70s cinema now and there are certain things with just the way that it looks it's it's probably neither good nor bad it just happens to be that you know i was alive at the time that it was happening so i remember and so it's just That's like five percent of the movie though it right? uh i i mean basically the exteriors so was, was this shot on film yes oh yeah okay. yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah thought so i don't think it's elsewhere's prettiest film um certainly not as prettiest with pta I think it's serviceable. I still think, um, <laughs> I still think No Country for Old Men looks better. I was going to say the same thing. It's no, it's no Deacons. I mean, yeah. it, it, and and honestly, even though we've done the comparison episode, it, it's hard to 
weigh this movie without talking about No Country, it always is going to be, I think, talked about in a pair just because yeah. it came out in close proximity in the same year. They were well, shot, gonna- They were both shot within, you know, 20 miles of each other where they were yeah. both No Control men had to West stop Texas. shooting because of this movie. Yeah, yeah. because of the, uh, the, 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 the smoke. Yeah. I think I said in the last episode, No Control Men was my number two of last decade. It probably is not that anymore. Um, I have a new number two, but, you know, uh, it's – I I don't know. I love the way Deacon's – if I was going to go back and reevaluate, I'd probably say Deacon's cinematography is better. Um, the washed out grain of some of this does strike me a little bit more after kind of hearing it and thinking it. Um, but that's also – it's – you know, this movie doesn't look bad. It's no, just, it doesn't look. It doesn't look bad. It's, it's just, just. It's a fingerprint of the time, and that's a little unfortunate. It works well for this movie, but it's also hard to divorce it from that. Well, mm-hmm. but also comparing it to No Control Men, which is like one of the best films in the history of cinematography. I mean, it is. Yeah. It is so beautifully shot. Deacons is so good. I will say there is one shot that I absolutely love that I actually I went back and, and rewatched again um, a, a second time. Just and it's it's not terribly flashy, but it's the when uh, H.W. sets Hank's bed on fire. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then Daniel goes chasing after him. It was the way that the exterior is lit. Um, and there's, you know, it's this really soft overhead light, but there's still some shadows and they go running off into the desert. Like it, that felt a little Deaconsy to be, to be perfectly honest, Mm -hmm. but in a great, like it's, it's beautiful. I understand like how they pulled it off, but it just, it felt so good and so texturally right. And, and it's also the way that it's playing, you know, it's playing in this wide, it all like. I think they do a lot of stuff with the cinematography and the blocking that's great in allowing a lot of things to play out like a silent film and to just happen in front of the camera and allow you to kind of get the context. So I think there is a lot in that regard, you know, divorcing from anything as far as the visual aesthetic or any of that, that side of things, the way that um, things are the way that frames are composed and everything works really, really well for this film. I will say that. Can you guys answer a question for dumb, dumb film watcher, Jake? Sure. Did he, did, did HW light his bed on fire because he read the diary and knew that he wasn't the brother or because it was some competition for his affection? I think it's because he knew that he was not somehow he had figured out that he, he wasn't the guy. I I think there's some way. I think there's a couple of reasons to it. One, I think HW has won that competition that says, well, I'm not number one anymore. Two, which I think is probably the the correct answer, is that he is thinking, well, it's actually not my dad's brother. Yeah. And then three, he's just so – he doesn't understand how to communicate with his dad. He needs to do something to get his attention. Something to show him yeah. what happens the very next scene, he's sent to San Francisco. Yeah. Like the yeah. very next scene, he is off to San Francisco. Um, and it, it's, I think HW is such 
an interesting character. Um, the and I do know I already mentioned Ebert once, but the Ebert review says this is compared to C- Citizen Kane a lot, mm-hmm. and he says, well, but Plainview has no rosebud. No, H.W. is his rosebud, yeah. and so is his yeah. brother. Th- those are his. Ro- he has two rosebuds, and once those things go south, then he truly deteriorates. Yeah, yeah. This is oddly like a movie about the importance of family, but through the absence of a strong family, of of a man without a family or a man without a a, a, a clan. Well, and it's it's all about when he lets his guard down. He only lets his guard yeah. down whenever there is family or something that he can think of as family because hw it's not his child but for all intents and purposes he raises him as his kid he really seems to be loving towards him uh and that's why it's so like it's so off-putting when he's telling him you know the bastard in a basket sequence at at the end when he's saying i never loved you you were just a you know you were just there as a cute face to help sell which he knows isn't true but the the saddest part of that whole moment is that hw doesn't he doesn't know that um that's a lie he doesn't know that he's putting up that brick wall because he's so hurt and he's almost ashamed of opening himself up. Well, it's 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 that moment where any kids have the moment where they've had something said by their parents that isn't really true and they probably know it, but mm-hmm. they choose to believe it in the second. Unfortunately for HW, their dad is saying something that he is saying the bastard in the basket, which is true. He's saying, since you're my competitor, I don't love you anymore. Get out of my life, which Usually would be the thing that is, well, I don't actually mean this. I don't really mean this. But for HW, he knows, well, it's probably true because this thing is true too. And that that scene is just so, so well played. It's it's a really scary scene in a lot of ways because Daniel Plainview, is, he is – lost any bearing to the normal world. And he really in that moment is so, so scary. Like he, like it's the scariest he is in the entire movie. Even when he is yelling at Eli, he just, he just looks at his would be son and says, you know, you were, you were nothing more to me than a bastard in a basket. And he means it. I think it only hurts as much as it does for us as a audience because we've seen him get soft those couple of times. Well, the moment right after HW is uh, in the accident, he is cradling him and he's holding him and he's rocking him back and forth. And he has that moment that if you've ever been a parent, you've had that moment where you've like had to cradle your kid and like – you just think, are you okay? Is everything okay? And unfortunately, his kid can't hear him, and he's not okay. He's not okay in the mm-hmm. way that he used to be. And Daniel's just rocking back and forth. And his response to that thing is, in that moment is, even though HW can't hear him, he says, that's enough. That's enough. And it's the, it's really, like that moment is 
heartbreaking in a way this time that I don't think it's ever been before. Well, and also there's the moment when he's talking to Henry and he brings it up again. He, you know, he says something to the effect of, I don't know, is, does your hearing come back or can you, it becomes very clear that it's something that's still gnawing at him and that he, the fact that it's something that's out of his control, like he tries to live his life so simply that he can control every element the fact that this is out of his control is just driving him insane. The moment as well that kills me and that I think is so good. And it's that one of those one shots that Jake had a problem with the first time we reviewed this. But when he leaves HW mm-hmm. on the train and Kieran Hines comes in to be with HW, mm-hmm. but you watch Dale Day Lewis walk away and just the guilt building up on his face and about 20, 20, 25 seconds into the shot, you see HW appear on the back of the train or the front of the mm-hmm. train. Mm-hmm. And you just see him. He keeps walking away. It's the only thing he knows how to do. I want to take care of my son. I can't be with him. I can't be the one to drop him off. I just need to take care of this. Go. And he's, and he's doing it for himself. He's not doing it. Like he's at this point, he's running away because he's not strong enough to deal with the moment. I think he's running away from dropping him off and being the person that yeah. takes care of him. I I do think he actually genuinely wants him to get better though. Yes. But, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Be, yeah, because then later he is absolutely overjoyed when he comes back. Which is oh god. And we talked about this last time, but I can't go without mentioning it again. My maybe my favorite moment of the movie is when HW arrives and it's one static shot and he walks across the field, hugs him. They walk across, they get closer to the camera and they hug again. And at the very beginning of the shot, DeLewis says, oh, that does me good. That does me good. And then Mm -hmm. after the second time he hugs him, HW hits him. And it's, it's, yeah, it's such an abrasive moment where you think, oh, like you, just, you know what they're both thinking, mm-hmm. and you just understand mm-hmm. from a human perspective what they're both understanding about the well, moment. And you know that 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 means that HW has had that pin up inside of him, that abandonment every single day. Yeah, because his dad did not go with him to drop him off at school. That's that's a horrible, horrible thought. Is that my dad just essentially had his assistant drop me off at the school and leave me leave me be it's 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 a horrible thought to think does any movie have more slaps than this movie this movie has such a high number of slaps those are some it's good, more than those a three are, stooges movie i mean it's constant constant slapping what are the better slaps the ones on uh paul dano yes who gets slapped yeah, in yeah, the yeah, mud yeah. or the ones that paul dano puts on day lewis no no daniel daniel day lewis slaps in this movie yeah i mean he is he is <laughs> he slaps and it slaps <laughs> and it slaps yeah say it. Abandon my child. say it louder say it louder i've abandoned my child i've abandoned my child i've abandoned my boy Beg for the blood. Just a 
me the bloody light. Let me get out of here. Give me the blood, Lord, and let me get away. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Get out of here, devil! Out, devil! Out, sin! Do you, do you accept the church of the third revelation as your spiritual guide? Get out of here! Get out of here! Get out of here! Jesus Christ as your Savior! Yes, I do. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. All right, boys. It's time for the funniest moment segment, which uh, I don't think it's going to be extremely difficult this time around, but it's it's a little more challenging than than some movies. What do you guys got for us this time? Ch- I, I got, I got, I don't know, three or four good belly laughs. I feel like, like okay. not like, like legitimate funny stuff, but just shocking funny. Sure. And things that I, I even now I, I know they're coming, and I, I still enjoy Plainview saying them so much. But I, I think the one I'm going to give best laugh to, which some people may not even laugh at all, is when uh, when H M Tilford tells Daniel Plainview it might be uh, more important now that we've proven the field and we're offering to buy you out about uh, telling him how to run his family <laughs> and, and plain, plain view says one night, I'm going to come to you inside your house, wherever you're sleeping and I'm going to cut your throat. That's just so like out of left field. And it's a great character moment, but I always just like have a guffaw at, at the fact that he would say that it's a testament to how much I'm bought into the movie, but also how great that character is and how absurd his line of question, or like his his line of thought, is to go from "Did you tell me how to run my family?" to "I'm going to come and cut your throat." That movie always makes you laugh, but also remember the first time seeing the movie, being so caught off guard, being like, "Hold on, yeah. what's this? <laughs> where did this movie just turn?" <laughs> All right, Peterson, what do you have? I love. I think there's a lot of funny moments in this movie, but my favorite, maybe, and it's the moment I always get glad is when Al who's the real estate guy, he says, <laughs> he goes, well, can't you just build around the, the this area and make the pipeline? He goes, why don't I own this? That's the Bandy tract. He was the holdout when we were doing the buying. He had hoped to speak with you. Can't you just build a pipeline around this tract? I build around 50 miles of Tehachapi Mountains? Don't be thick in front of me, Al. <laughs> I can go to him again? No, I'll go and talk to the man. I'll talk to him, show you how it's done. It's such a weird, especially in the context of today, it's such a weird phrasing. One, but two, he just immediately sizes him down to the point and he says, you know what? And then Al says, you know, I, I can go. I can go talk to him. And he goes, nope. I can yeah. do it. Like, leave me alone. I got this. Like, And it's – I mean, it's so funny. He just goes, don't be thick in front of me, Al. And it's – and you know it's been coming because you've been watching the movie correctly. He's – you know, Al's told him three or four times, hey, Bandy, you got to go talk to Bandy. And so, when he's the holdout of not selling the land, it's – the one of the one times that uh, Plain View is kind of 
caught on being a bad businessman because he won't go talk to this one person who won't sell his land. Uh, but two, it's just play, uh, Day Lewis delivers it so, so beautifully. It's such a, such a great moment. I, I love that moment. I concur. My favorite moment, the funniest moment in my recollection is also don't be thick in front of me, Al. So uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for taking that Peterson. And but, I think, I think we all avoid it. Milkshake. Yeah. I mean, milkshake's too. Milkshake's I don't think easy, that's but, necessarily funny. But the, the thing about it, it is, it's the delivery. It's the way that he, yeah. he does it. He just sort of turns venomous for a second and then goes back to sort of more or less the conversation they were having. And it's just, it, it's the type of thing where with a different, I, I think with a different actor, you wouldn't be able to get the words on the page to transcend to what they need to be to pull it off. No. And, Daniel and, Day -Lewis and, and, does and somehow Daniel Day-Lewis isn't like camp at all ever. Yeah. Like it's it, it's so real, it's so great and and unique and everything else. And anyone else would have botched this whole thing. There's an alternative universe version of this movie somewhere where everyone complains that Daniel Plainview should have really been the secondary character, and Eli <laughs> Sunday should have been the the main focus because Daniel Plainview's too big and broad. And somehow he is so big and broad, but works here and that's i mean it's a testament to the writing it's a testament to pta realizing what he can do with daniel day lewis like you were saying from the the elvis mitchell interview uh which we'll we'll link to that in the the show notes i think um and just the way that it all comes together so well to be like right at that edge but never too far well i will say i'd love to see the alternate story of eli sunday i Yes. I think there's a, enough of a story there to tell. And if PTA wants to go back and make a sequel to this, game on. Like, I'm ready to go. Is, is Paul Dano going to look any older? Because he didn't age in the in the 16 years between when Daniel Plainview met him and when he came back. It throws me off every time I well, watch this. To be, to be fair, to be fair, Paul Dano looks almost the same as he did <laughs> 17 yeah. years okay. ago. Yeah. That's actually that what I thought you were going to say, Jake. I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind because he put oil in his yeah. hair and did like a little butt cut down the middle. So he looked like he had aged some, obviously. Oh, actually, yeah, it, yeah, sure, it was sure. weird. It, it makes him look younger. It, it, it made me question uh, watching it this time and maybe last time, too. I can't remember if Daniel Day-Lewis had actually died on the floor of the bowling alley and was just having like a death thought of killing Eli and young Eli came back. And it didn't make any sense. But that's how much I was like, why does did they not like try to age him at all? I, they didn't need. It's fine. It's I will fine. say, though, if you're going to sleep in a bowling alley. Played you found the way to make it most comfortable. His shoulder was kind of in, <laughs> in the, the lane, like his gutter, and his head's kind of on the side. He's kind of – he figured out the way to make it the most comfortable. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Don't bully me, Daniel. <laughs> Did you think your song and dance and your superstition would help you, Eli? All right, guys, now it's time to figure out what shelf we're going to put this on in the Anderson Anthology. Is it an Anderson A-list at the very top? Is it a 
deep dive are we calling it deep search for PTA? it could be a deep drill on this one i i don't i don't know let's let's not get hasty okay <laughs> anderson a list deep dive or is this purely for pulse papa uh peterson we know where you're going with it so let's just get that out of the way this is the kind of movie that you know there obviously epic cinema is one of those things that has a very broad term like an epic movie and it's the kind of thing my dad would say, oh, you know, this is such a big epic. We need to go watch it and we got to go see it. And it would have been things like, I don't know, you know, Dances Wolves or Armageddon. Armageddon. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, the Last Samurai. The Last Samurai. Yeah. All these. The Patriot. Like, kind of. Oh, oh, I absolutely saw the Patriot with my dad, and my stepmom in theaters. Um, it, but those yeah, are like yeah, see, epic. Child Protective Services came and got your kid if you didn't take him to, to see the Patriot. <laughs> uh, but these are all like epic cinema, right? Um, but this is to me the kind of epic that you just have to see. And part of it is because it has this epic scope, but it is so focused on what the characters are. Um, and I, so I just think this is an absolute Anderson A list. I don't think there are movies. There's not a lot of movies that really meet what this can do from a cinematic level, but also from an emotional level. This, to me, in a weird way, is kind of like a warm blanket. Um, it's maybe because I've seen it so many times. I just know the rhythms so well, but I just, I love watching this movie and it just feels comforting in some weird, odd way. But absolutely, this is an interesting A list. Like, if you haven't seen this, what are you doing with your life? Come on. So, <laughs> my answer is a little different than that. So you don't say. <laughs> yeah. So so e- e- even even having rewatched it five times, I think this time I landed on it being like a seven and a half or an eight out of ten for me. Amazing, perfect performances. They're they're great. The direction's great. Everything. It, it just it still doesn't quite click in the way that some of the other films that I think are great films are. That being said, there's no way I can't rank this as an Anderson A-list because it is a must-see. It's what I would recommend to people. And I would rank it as a cinema A-list. Like, it is one of those movies that you have to see. Even if I don't think it's the the movie that I take with me to a desert island or anything crazy like that, I think it's something that if you watch movies, you have to watch this one. If you like film, if you like cinema, if you exactly what Peterson said is true, even if I, I don't agree and, and love it with all of my heart. I think it's something that uh, calls me back to watch it again, even as I'm not enjoying it completely. And part of that may be it's a riddle that I, I'm I'm still uh, trying to solve in my head about who is Daniel Plainview and and what drives him and all of those things. So Anderson A-list, not even reluctant about it, not even couching it with anything else. Even if it's not my favorite movie, there's there's just no way not to rank this as a classic. Yep. I'm same boat, uh, Anderson A-list. I mean... I think there there are a couple things that I could probably nitpick. We didn't get terribly critical at all here, but it's you know Peterson, you say epic cinema. It's it's sort of I don't want to call it art house epic because that sounds like you're putting you know a bit of a pejorative on it or or something. But it's it's intimate epic in and which is something that we don't see very often. And I think it's it's pulled off very elegantly, very well. Um, and yeah, while it's not my favorite PTA, I think it is a must watch 
uh, for everyone, even my wife who fell asleep in the theater when we saw it back in 2007. We can eat and get some women. Take them to the Peachtree Dance. I say get liquored up and take them to the Peachtree Dance. So, Chris, tell me, if you're planning on taking some girls to the Peace Street dance and getting all liquored up, what are you going to guzzle with them? Sorry, what? I said, get some girls liquored up and take them to the Peace Street dance. Oh, I'm glad you asked, Peterson, and please don't shoot me in the head while I sleep. We'll see about that. Pairing a beer with There Will Be Blood, I knew... There had to be at least one thing, one criterion that I'm I hit on, and that was the darkest possible beer I could find to go along with this rich crude oil that Daniel Plainview is pulling out of the ground. And by golly, I think I landed on something pretty good. Barrel-aged Bible Belt, which is a collaboration between Prairie Artisan Ales in Krebs, Oklahoma, and Evil Twin Brewing in Brooklyn. Uh, this is a 13% ABV beer, so pretty heavy hitter coming in at 65 IBU. Uh, so it takes sort of something like the base of the bomb and combines that with evil twins, even more Jesus Imperial stout, uh, to create this really great, uh, it's, it's like the bomb, but a little bit sweeter, I guess I would say, if you had to just have a base comparison and assuming you're familiar with, with the bomb, uh, and then this variant they've barrel aged. And I don't, I honestly don't know if this is in production right now. You see it every once in a while. I know at least around my area, just the regular Bible belt is available. So if that's all you can find, sure, go, go grab it. But uh, the barrel age is a bit of a, a treat. And, you know, I'm a one-trick pony as far as I like dark, high ABV beers that have been aged in some sort of oak barrel. Uh, this particular one, the one that I was drinking as we recorded this evening, uh, was th- three years old. Been I'd been cellaring it for a while, actually, I guess, since the last time that we talked about this movie. It aged really well. It... Uh, at this point, there's a lot of sort of uh, peppery, spicy notes coming out of it. Uh, also, the kind of dryness of the oak is more pronounced. Um, it's like, you know, most dark stouts. It's the type of beer that really starts to open up and give you a whole lot of flavor as it warms up. So uh, something that could be fun to sip across the entire length of this two and a half hour movie and see how it transforms as the movie goes along. There's nothing really that I can complain about with this beer. I think it's good, fresh, it's good aged. Try it both ways if you can and uh, sit back, relax and enjoy it while you watch. There will be blood. That is barrel-aged or regular Bible Belt from Prairie and Evil Twin. It's got a pretty good tie-in with the name, too. Bible Belt. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. There Will Be Blood is currently streaming on Netflix. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email is your thing, we still love to hear from you. 
Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4-CINEMA. Stick around, folks. Our really rad recommendations are coming up next. guys time for some really rad recommendations it's a segment that's probably more valuable to people now that we're still living in the age of quarantine than uh it it has been ever in the history of the show uh what what sort of content do you guys have to recommend for people who let's assume that they've just watched there will be blood and enjoyed this uh lovely episode and now they're looking for more jake what do you think they should watch, read, enjoy, listen to, whatever, consume? I initially wanted to pick like a thematic pairing for There Will Be Blood. And there's a a, a, a good Stanley Kramer movie, not great, but a good Stanley Kramer movie called Oklahoma Crude that stars uh, Faye Dunaway and George C. Scott and Jack Palance. Have any of you seen that? Negative. Never even heard of it. Oh, no, it's it's actually I I like George C. Scott, so I, I'll I'll watch basically anything that he's in. Uh, but it's one of those movies that has nine hundred and eighty one reviews on uh, IMDb. <laughs> so one of those is probably me. So instead, I said, let me pick it. Let me pick another movie from uh from an actor from uh, this one and uh, the um the the real estate guy that Daniel Plainview has. Do you did you guys recognize him? No. Every single time I've watched this movie, I've paused it in the middle to search Jim Downey, There Will Be Blood. Jim Downey is a writer from Saturday Night Live. He's He was there for about 30 years. He exclusively wrote Weekend Update when Norm MacDonald was there. And you probably know him as the one who de- delivered the classic line, Mr. Madison, what you have just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That's making a lot of rounds these days in uh, Georgia. Yeah, it definitely is. But since everybody's seen Billy Madison, and everybody has seen There Will Be Blood, I'm going with his third movie that he's ever appeared in, which is the great, the the very, very great 
Norm Macdonald film, Dirty Work, with Norm Macdonald, Artie Lang, and Jack Warden, directed by, believe it or not, Bob Saget. I didn't know this. How did I not know this? That Bob Saget directed? Yeah. Yeah. No. I knew, it's, I it's, knew that. I didn't know it was great, though. I remember, <laughs> okay. I remember seeing it. Okay. Great is, is it's, a, it's a really funny movie that I enjoyed a lot growing up and have been looking to rewatch. I've searched this movie no more than, or no fewer than 10 times, just trying to find a place to stream it without having to pay for it. <laughs> Haven't found it yet. For some reason, it's not even available on somewhere where you can like watch it with commercials or something. So you do have to pay $3 to rent it, but you're stuck at home and you have nothing to do. Watch Dirty Work. I'm going to, I'm going to try to do it through legal mechanisms this week. All right. Peterson, what do you got? <laughs> really quick, uh, Earfront Con passed away yesterday. Go see The Namesake. It's the Mirror film from 2007. It's absolutely wonderful. Please go see it. Uh, he's wonderful in it. Uh, but my actual recommendation is Julie Dash's film, Daughters of the Dust, which is currently streaming on the Criterion channel. Um, have you all seen this? No. No, I haven't. It's a movie that... I, for a while, have been wanting to see, and I recently caught up with it. It is about the Gullah Geechee culture on the sea islands between Florida and North Carolina. And it's a way of life that still exists to this day, but it's obviously not quite as prominent as it once was. And it's about African-American culture that really existed after slavery up until – Really, a certain point in the early 1900s, and this film takes place in 1902, as this family is really having the decision of whether or not to go to the mainland, really to go to Savannah and start life, um, and whether or not they should stay. And it's this really kind of dreamy, hypnotic work that Julie Dash has created. It's really gorgeous in a lot of ways, but it's also... This really intimate look at a culture that once was really prominent for certain people that obviously in today's society just could never really work. Um, and it's has this very dreamlike quality that is incredibly valuable to me that certain movies can achieve it. And uh, so that's Daughters of the Dust. It's uh, from filmmaker Julie Dash. She's currently working on a Rosa Parks biopic, which she hasn't really made that many movies since Daughters of the Dust. So I got incredibly excited <laughs> um, when I heard that she's when I saw that she's working on a uh, Rosa Parks film because she has this semi-dreamlike quality behind the camera that I think would work really well with biopic because my problem with a lot of biopics is that it's this kind of really stale look at these people's lives when Rosa Parks was a living, breathing human who had living, breathing emotions and had volatility and excitement and energy behind her. But if most biopics show her, it's going to be this very stale version of her. Um, so I'd love to see what Julie Dash can do, uh, within her oeuvre. And that's Daughters of the Dust from Julie Dash. It's currently streaming on the Cartoon channel. Uh, and that's about the Gullah Geechee culture. All right. I'm definitely queuing that up. Uh, my recommendation this time is a documentary from 2006 entitled Nuts with an exclamation point. 
directed by Penny Lane, who had the uh, the doc Hail Satan that came out last year. I don't know if you guys remember that. I really want to see it. I, I, I really do. This is about John Brinkley, who was an early 20th century charlatan. So you can see where uh, the connections come in here. And he was obsessed with curing people's ailments through the natural healing powers of goat testicles. As you do. His main grift was that he claimed to make men more virile by literally cutting them open and just throwing goat testicles into them along with their, you know, normal testicles and sewing them back up. Don't knock until you try it. The the main focus of the documentary is sort of his uh, use of goat testicles and uh, the way, also the way that he presents himself. Uh, so it's, it's pretty interesting the way it's, it's, presented there are i think four maybe five chapters in the doc and each one is animated by a different animator or animation house and so each one has a bit of a different style but the majority of the documentary uh up towards the last chapter is presented mostly from his perspective from this uh, biography that he had commissioned about him essentially. And so it's this interesting, unreliable narrator sort of thing, um, that's, that's building up and you obviously know, like, okay, there's no way that just cutting a guy's scrotum open, putting goat testicles inside, sewing him up is going to make him, you know, suddenly produce children if he wasn't before. It's a fun, weird little little uh, doc. I I like Penny Lane. Um, she has a few others that uh, I still need to see. I still need to see Hail Satan, which is on Hulu. Um, so if you want to make it a double feature, you can do that. But this is on Amazon Prime, or you can also watch it for free on Penny Lane's Vimeo. Um, it's it's pretty fun. It's lighter than though there will be blood, but um, I think I think it could make a, a good double feature too. And that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons, our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs, Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Next time, we're discussing my personal favorite film by Wes, The Darjeeling Limited. You can find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more. If you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at warstartsmidnight.com or better yet, give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or you can just say hello on Twitter. I'm at WSAMPod. I'm at JakeRG23. And I'm at Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help you out grow the Midnight Warrior Clan and... It'll make you feel awesome. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck at Lava Sound Studios. And shout out to Bo Jennings for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at bojennings.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening, folks. I'm finished. Well, that was one goddamn hell of a show.
Instead of eating goat testicles, why don't you join four hens? We'll make sure your virility comes back in the most <laughs> present way. 